Hello, and uh, welcome to another installment of the Ajam podcast. Uh, I'm your host, Rustin, and today I'm here with Kayvon Harris, professor of sociology at UCLA and the author of A Social Revolution, Politics and the Welfare State in Iran, which I just heard won the 2018 Nikki Keddy Prize at the Middle Eastern Studies Association annual meeting. I'm very uh, happy to have Kayvon join us. Uh, welcome, Kayvon. Thank you, Rustin. I'm glad that you're here to, um, to tell us a little bit about your work. And um, also, you've been really supportive of Adjam in the past, so it's great to, to talk to you about your research today. Thank you. Just something that um, I've been wanting to ask you, because when we talk about the Islamic Republic, at least in Iranian studies, people always ask the questions of how has the state been so resilient, right? And your book is about the social welfare state in Iran. Can you just kind of give us a rundown about the history of social welfare in the Islamic Republic, maybe even beforehand um, mm. during the Pahlavi period? But what function does it play in the state and why is it important to um, our understanding of uh, the IRI? Well, like many people who both traveled to Iran and just read about Iran from the outside, when I first started getting interested in Iran in a scholarly way, so basically, you know, late 90s, early 2000s, one of the prevailing explanations for how this political elite reproduced itself, reproduced the state, uh, was able to uh, maintain itself, even in a very desperate position geopolitically over all of these decades, often relied on the argument that, ah, well, there's this base, uh, large base uh, of the population, the poor, the devout, that not only maybe they believed, maybe they didn't believe in the revolutionary cause itself, but thanks to oil, the Islamic Republic had access to revenue, and they used this revenue through social policy, or if you want to be more crass, handouts, this term that's often used um, in, in both in journalism and in, in scholarship, unfortunately, to just buy off this poor. And if it wasn't for that, then the Islamic Republic would be no more, and it would be some other type of state there. And of course, there's an Iranian version of this argument, but this, version, this argument also gels with the way that the Middle East is almost always described um, in social science, as well as among pundits, that if it wasn't for oil or, or some kind of external resource, these states would collapse. And they, because of this resource, they're able to maintain some sort of autonomy, and they don't have to uh, have any relationships with uh, society, specifically the society that intellectuals like, or intellectuals are often embedded in, so middle, so-called middle classes, so-called civil society, etc. So I, I went to Iran, and I started seeing Iran, and in the Iran I saw did not look anything like the Iran I had read about. The Iran I had read about talked about these big things called bunyads, the foundations. Somehow the foundations were the epicenter of a social policy in Iran. I got there and they actually tried to be very unimportant, at least in terms of delivering social services and social protection. They're very small compared to other organizations that are much more important, many of which predate the 1979 revolution. So I first said, okay, well, what am I going to read to figure out and map the social policy system in Iran today? And where it came from, and what were the politics of it? And it turns out no one had written that at all, including in Persian scholarship. In Persian scholarship on social policy, most intellectuals uh, and sociologists had largely attempted to say, describe Iran's system as what it did not have, as opposed to what it did have, meaning that Europe, 
France, Germany, English social policy systems had X, Y, Z, and Iran had none of that, and therefore Iran doesn't have a welfare system at all, a welfare state. It just has a lack. And, of course, much explanation of outcomes in the Middle East often relies on the explanation of an absence, or at least the accounting of an absence. But, of course, there are many institutions in Iran that link the state and society, and uh, I didn't find anything which really synthesized this. So, for, I mean, you know, on the one hand, it took a lot more work to produce a book like this. But in, in that sense, I actually had to do the work myself. So really from primary sources, interviews, um, you know, government archives, uh, and also going to a lot of these institutions themselves, such as healthcare clinics in the countryside, Ministry of Welfare, uh, Social Security Organization, and the Imam Khomeini Relief Committee, which is one of the biggest sort of revolutionary social policy institutions in Iran, and actually go and see how do they work, what's the history, how do the people who work there justify what they do, what's the genealogy of the concepts used that are very different in these institutions, and how can I compare this with both you know experiences in the Middle East more broadly and also compare it to other third world states. Wow. Kayvon, you did all my work for me. I don't even have to ask any more questions. <laughs> well, I'm just getting started. Yeah. <laughs> I think I danced around the answer, but let's, no, let's I mean, continue I'm to down. dance. Let's, you know, yeah, I'm down to tango. Let's do this. Um, no, I, I liked how you ended your description about continuity and change, right? So, like, one of the things that I hear about, especially as a second-gen Iranian, like, um, and my familiarity with the Iranian revolution, you know, from my scholarship, but also at home, is this idea that, like, you know, uh, one of the major slogans of 1979 was everybody will have electricity. Everybody will have all these social services delivered to them as if these things were something new or that these things were not happening during the Pahlavi regime. How much of this idea of a social welfare state played into the idea of the revolutionary fervor in Iran and how much of it was something that uh, was put in place after the revolution and how much of it was actually built upon in the decades before it? Mm, yeah, this is a good question. In fact, I think that one of the ways forward for scholars and maybe for second-generation Iranians is to think about continuity as much as we want to talk about change. And the more and more I look at the legacy of the Pahlavi monarchy, uh, not the legacy that's often referred to in the scholarship where it's the legacy of autocracy, uh, you know, basically the leftist critique. It's an over-dominating state. It's uh, completely centralized and autocratic. But actually, you know, just like many absolutist monarchies uh, in world history, uh, they built the foundations of a state upon which other states uh, and other regimes or other political elites then carried out various new programs of which they thought were modernization. Well, I mean, you know, I still think we lack a very good social history of the Pahlavi period. Most of it's focused on intellectuals, on the left, uh, on, on technocrats, of course, and on the coterie surrounding the Shah himself, and then on the cultural production, you know, associated with various intellectuals. But, you know, we really don't have a good social history, especially outside of Tehran. I mean, Tehran was the vast minority of Iranian society looked like Tehran I mean, in, in the 1950s and 60s. So the social policy system in Iran uh, really starts from small beginnings and has to do with the modernizing intentions of the Pahlavi state. And it emulates other states, whether it's in Europe or Turkey or Russia, starting from the 1930s onwards. But it's really only till the 1970s, as far as I've found, that some of the basic institutions we think of as part of a social policy system in Iran really were put in place. And they were put in place by uh, the Pahlavi government, including, uh, including the food subsidies that Iranians know so well today. So cheap bread, cheap electricity, 
you know, those were really put in place and solidified as part of a, a kind of social bargain in the 70s, but also uh, social insurance and health care and, you know, um, actually uh, extensions of the state into the countryside. So aside from the land reform in Iran, which happened in the 60s and the 70s, you know, many of the policies that the Shah attempted to do or the Shah's bureaucrats attempted to do in the 70s in piecemeal fashion, these were picked up later by uh, bureaucrats in the Islamic Republic. A most impressive example of which, which I have a chapter in the book about, is uh, healthcare delivery to the countryside. So, you know, already by the early 1970s, bureau- uh, health bureaucrats in Iran and the Ministry of Health were looking around the world, like in Cuba and China, and seeing, like, you know, yeah, there's something very difficult about a big state at the top reaching down into the countryside because, you know, what's the incentive of a peasant family? to take up the health changes and behavioral changes, changes in maybe family planning policies or, or, or lifestyle, uh, just because a bureaucrat comes from the center of the country and tells them to do so. So, you know, the famous uh, Sapad Danesh uh, and Sapaya Bedasht in Iran. So for our listeners, could you translate? These are, oh, sorry, like the health core and the literacy core to these sort of part of the Ahlavi government's attempt to, you know, bring... Um, the institutions of the state to the countryside, you know, there's a, you know, the scholarship and some of the anthropology at the time shows that um, the penetration of the state into the countryside was limited, certainly in many parts of it. And that changed after the revolution. The same bureaucrats were in the middle of the Ministry of Health in the 1970s that were in the 1980s. But what happened? The top, like most revolutions, they'll take off the top. So the top of the ministries are all cut off, you know, and these guys fled, and the doctors fled. But the bureaucrats, many of them stayed, and they, they were like, well, we're radicals. We want to bring health care to the countryside. So who do we convince to do this? And so there were all of these new revolutionary agencies that expressed commitment to the revolution and had their own ideas of what that meant. And there's a whole chapter of the book about how, you know, this new environment allowed health bureaucrats in the Ministry of Health to push primary health care, deep into the countryside, and, you know, uh, vaccination rates went way up, infant mortality went way down very, very fast, at a time, by the way, when oil prices were low, at a time when the Iran-Iraq war was raging. So one has to take into account that you can't just explain, you know, increases in social policy extension just because the price of oil is high. Um, uh, or because Khomeini said something, by the way. I mean, this is a, one of the one of the worst myths, which is perpetuated by journalists, both uh, inside and outside Iran, and just by scholars who are lazy. Let's admit it: is that Khomeini says in the beginning of the revolution that I hate family planning, contraception is evil. The Shah wanted it, so I don't want it. I don't want anything he wanted. And you all should have millions and millions of children because we need a big besiege army. This is like the most slop- this is one of the sloppiest ways of doing social analysis. First of all, and it's incredibly prevalent, though. Well, of course, but just because Khomeini says something, how do you know somebody follows it? I mean, I, maybe you see Khomeini in the moon doesn't mean you're going to immediately do what he says too. I mean, just because Khomeini says something, you can't take a statement in a newspaper in Etalat in 1979 or 80 and say, therefore, Iranian millions of Iranians did this social action. Next, what about all the agency you think you like to subscribe to Iranians? Maybe the Iranians you like only get the agency. Well, it turns out that there was a huge debate over family planning. And Khomeini himself, by the way, issued many, many uh, letters to uh, health ministry offices around the country in the 80s saying, actually, contraception is fine as long as it doesn't hurt the mother. Uh, And so he was not against contraception. 
Others were. Others certainly were. So there was a debate among the ulama, among radicals, among third worldists, leftists. It wasn't just the fact that these guys were religious, but they were third worldists. And third worldists often at the time saw family painting as a project imposed from you know, northern uh, imperialists at the time. They thought imperialist countries. So there was a debate all throughout the 80s about the use of contraception. And Khomeini himself, actually, his letters, which were sent to ministry offices, were rejected were rejected by uh, radicals in these places said, I don't care. I know that this is an evil policy, birth control. This is a policy of the Talgutis, of the, of the, of the, um, of the Pahlavi era. So Khomeini himself was rejected and took a 10-year process of intellectual debate, uh, demands from below, the extension of healthcare uh, clinics into the countryside, and major pressure by bureaucrats and scientists to get family planning reinstituted in Iran as a national policy, which took which took place after the war. So that's just one example. And that's just a single example of a single policy, which used to be just writ large over by so-called experts, like these journalists who say, well, Khomeini said it, and then 10 years later he changed his mind, and once he changed his mind, oh, everyone then all of a sudden followed him again. What world does this look like? How come in wealthy countries we take into account the policy process, the different interest groups involved, the fact that, I don't know, some people agree and some people don't agree. Maybe their interests are different than the state. But for Iran, all we need to prove the existence of a policy mm. is to cite, The leader said so. So is this guy said it, and he was the leader, and therefore people followed what he said. I mean, it's, 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 it's the most insane reading of, of society just unpacking that, which I do a lot in the book, requires a lot of um, unearthing. So get the real story of how we got from A to B. And I do that on healthcare, I do it on social insurance, uh, and I do it on subsidies. Can you just talk a little bit about the Iran-Iraq war and its significance for expanding the welfare state and whether or not that that idea itself is problematic or uh, needs to be challenged? Mm. No, it's a good idea because, and it's also nothing is uh, nothing unique to Iran. If you look at the history of social policy expansion in Europe, where Iranians love to compare themselves to, but also in East Asia, um, certainly in the Soviet Union, um, and in some parts of Latin America, although less so because there's not many wars of this type, not mass wars, but still, you know, expansion of social policy, whether it's social insurance or unemployment uh, insurance or health care policies, often come at the tail end of wars. So it turns out that war, not, not expertise or liberal do-gooders or reformists or the right intellectuals, but wars are some of the main drivers world historically of social policy expansion. That and probably protests, and protests is another major one. Like that's something we know from the history of social policy all over the world, and Iran is no different. So Iran had all of these revolutionary institutions that were produced, but even before the war started, as a way to deal with what happens when the state, essentially when the regime collapses, that too fast that anybody that anybody expected, way too fast. I mean, it took a year, but still, when it when it ended, nobody saw it coming. I mean, these guys thought they were going to be in the streets for two, three, five years. So all of a sudden, the regime is gone. And what do you do with the bureaucracies? What do you do with the ministries? Okay, uh, what do you do with the existing civil service? Well, yeah, they're all. You can't get rid of them all. That's what the United States did in Iraq, and look what happened. So you can't get rid of them all, but you don't trust them. So what do you do? You make a parallel institution to police, to watch, and to guide that large bureaucracy. So every institution in Iran, every ministry, 
um, every agency all of a sudden both had an outside parallel institution uh, and actually inside of the uh, ministries themselves, they had the uh, Islamic Association, the Anjumani Haya Islami, who were essentially supposed to watch around. So then you have the war, and the war locks into place this parallel system of governance. You have these revolutionary institutions on all sides of policy, social policy, economic policy, military policy. So you got the military, and you got the SAPA. You got the Ministry of Welfare, Ministry of Agriculture, and now you have the Basij Ektisadi, the economic Basij, which is doing price controls and, and rations. And you have the uh, Jihadisad Zandigi, the construction jihad, which is going out and building bridges and building roads. Crappy roads, but still roads in the countryside. So they're dueling systems of governance. And I go about uh, uh, explaining these things about it in the book. And then over time, some of them get merged, some of them don't. But the war really locks into place this system. So, you know, in that sense, the Bonyaz who have different purposes arise in this milieu. Uh, there's the Imam Khomeini Relief Committee, which is not studied enough, which is the biggest one in terms of the number of beneficiaries. And I have a whole chapter on Imam Khomeini Relief Committee, which is really targeting those individuals who had been excluded from the Pahlavi monarchy's social policy system. And by the, who was excluded in the previous you know, era in the 70s and 60s. You know, basically, it's like social policy systems in many third world countries. Your your welfare benefits came through your occupation or through your husband's occupation or your father's if he was retired. It's very common, and that's the system that the Shah built. The problem is when the labor force is largely informal or peasant-based, then if all of the benefits flow through formal occupations, whether they're working class, like in the oil sector, or they're managerial, like in the civil service, then the vast majority of the population will never have access by definition because the economy is not structured that way. So lots of people get left out of the system. It's not a malignant uh, design. It's not nefarious. It's the structure of the policy because it's copying Europe. It's copying European systems where the labor market is 80% formal. Well, in Iran, it's 20% formal in the 1970s, so no one's getting access to these goods, these social benefits. So... Uh, the you know revolutionary institutions of social policy for all of their faults, they don't care about that rule or that design. They care about delivering policy to those groups they saw as excluded, as disenfranchised, as you know, as the new vanguard of the revolution. And so, a new cat, a set, a new set of status categories were created in which someone could claim benefits by saying, "I belong to that category." In that sense, we get the category of the martyr. So the category of the martyr is not a stable category in Iranian discourse. It keeps changing. Who gets to be a martyr keeps changing after every few years in Iran. In fact, even to this day, they start including, still including people who can be classified as martyrs. And uh, well, and veterans is another example. Uh, the disabled. Um, many people who, who were volunteering on the front lines in the war can claim themselves as war participants. So these categories became malleable. The state would use them, but people would use them. People would claim access to institutions of the state by using the status categories that were produced in the war. So in that sense, millions and millions of people got access to some form of state transfer in the 80s because of that. But also, old institutions were important. Public employment basically doubled in the war. So the state basically doubled. Number of people employed by the government doubled. In that sense, that access to the formal system, which had been inherited by the Islamic Republic, also then had to take care of these individuals. You know, so so I also trace that in the book that you know the old institutions of the Pahlavi monarchy, 
which were really purpose for us, a minority of the working force. All of a sudden, we're, in, we're, in, we're taking care of almost a majority, and by today, a majority, because if you look at the Social Security Organization in Iran, something that no journalist in the West ever would pay attention to, it's the biggest institution in Iran in terms of deliveries of social policy, whether it's health care, uh, social insurance, pensions. It's the biggest one. It's the one where all these scandals are going on if you live in Iran and you read the Iranian business press. And it's important. It's way more important than any of these boneyards. But if I go to Washington, D.C. W- and go and talk about the Social Security Organization, their eyes will gloss over because it doesn't look, doesn't register on their map of the bad guys, which is to their discredit. I mean, you know, their job is to understand Iran. Well, maybe that's not their job. But somebody there should be doing it. I mean, you know, so it's just... That's why I live on the other side of the United States now. I live as far away as possible from Washington, D.C., and I'm really happy about that because the concepts and, and, and you know used in D.C. on Iran, including bonyad, which is this exotic term, it just means foundation, like any religious foundation in the United States has all this tax-free crap that they get. They're un- it's an unwillingness to be comparative um, for, for political purposes. If they started to compare these institutions with institutions in other parts of the world, it would de-exoticize them, and it would, I mean, it would uh, make it much more difficult to create policies to punish Iran, in my opinion. Thanks. I got a little political. No, no, no. Purpose I mean, that's... Uh... I have lots of things to say about <laughs> Well, that's what I want to hear. Anyway, I just want to make... The book ends not with stability. I mean, these institutions get created and reach down and change the lives of Iranians, but the story doesn't end there. And, of course, many people say... Why are you writing a book that essentially absolves the Islamic Republic of all of its bad things? I don't do that at all. Actually, the book ends with the Green Movement. The point is, where did the Green Movement come from? Where do all these so-called middle-class people come from? The size of the middle class, however you want to measure it, however you want to measure it, and the term itself is loose, let's put it that way, and loosely used. However you want to measure it, the size of the middle class in Iran in 79 is small. It's not the vanguard of anything. I mean, it's it, yeah, it's got some leftists, you know, it's got some students, but look at the size of the student population in Iran in 79. It's small. In in uh, in 99, it's still small, by the way. It's 2009, it's bigger, you know, student population, the middle class. So where do these middle class people come from? I mean, this is a question that no one asks. Do they come out of thin air? Do they come because Iranians are, are uh, smart? Uh, no. This is this is this is a nationalist way of explaining protest. No, they come. Where do all these people come from? They come because of the way that Iranian society transformed in those forty years, thirty years since the revolution. Well, how did that transformation occur? Is the state completely absent from this transformation, or are some of the policies of the state facilitating those transformations, and are other policies of the state unintendedly producing these transformations? I would say yes. And I would say, as opposed to there's a society that develops on the one end. I mean, this is the classic portrayal of Iran, that there's a state with its, with its fiqhusili, you know, it's, it's religious jurisprudence, uh, it's, it's, it's traditional mores, it's hang-ups on women, um, and, of course, it's now it's dangerous expansion into the rest of the world. And then there's society with its movies, its intellectuals, its movements, uh, and it's urbane cosmopolitanism. And these two things have nothing to do with each other. This is the classic portrayal of Iran in the 90s, including by Iranian politicians themselves. Um, and, of course, this comes all the way up through Ahmadinejad up to the present day, although today it's very hard to, to, to even justify this. But this schism between state and society, which has a deep, deep genealogy in Iranian studies itself, deep in 20th century Iranian historiography, I would say is a huge stumbling block 
to understanding why Iran looks like it does today. And it has a lot more to do with the way that intellectuals and scholars have wanted to present Iran than with the realities of Iran, also how middle-class people like to present themselves as well. So the book ends with a huge protest movement, but a protest movement in which I ask, where did these people come from, and how did the grievances that they express, uh, how did those get formulated uh, in the ways that they did? Are they totally unlinked from the previous 35 years of this penetration of state institutions into society? Or, in fact, are they produced in some way by the new and changing relationships between state and society that came out of the revolution? And I have a bunch of explanations about that, but that's how the book ends. So I used to joke that, like, if you said that the water was potable in Tehran, you were a regime apologist. Like, if you don't drink the water, you're cool. But I drank the tap water in Tehran. I think I, where I lived in Tehran, Paris, tap water was great. And, uh, you know, I just joked, you could say anything good about Iran since 79, you're an apologist. Well, I mean, I'm tired of that. And most second-generation Iranians, by the way, are sick of that stuff. You know, we need to have a, um, a new way of looking at the country where we, you know, I don't, I'm, you know, frankly, I've been less and less bothered with that accusation. And it's actually happened less and less. I think it's just silly. So, you know, can we take into account, like, the changes in Iran with all of the brutal and violent side of how the state formed and how the state coercively forced individuals and groups to do either what they wanted or at least to stay quiet. At the same time, as we understand how people's lives were transformed in the post-revolutionary era, the spaces that not only they made for themselves, like this agency resistance from below, fine. But that is, by the way, that's just this overly romanticized understanding of how people operate. It's not this resistance from below uh, counter-hegemonic uh, concepts, uh, I think, again, are really more about the intellectual than they are about society. Instead, there's lots of spaces that the state creates that people occupy that sometimes maybe they're created for the purpose of telling people what to do, and it turns out people don't want to do that for whatever reason, whether it's universities, labor unions, artist houses, or, by the way, the IRGC and the Besiege himself, which have, have notorious difficulties in policing their own cadres for the last 40 years. So it's not just there's a one group of people who are, um, are with the state and there's another group of people which aren't. I mean, there's this, this never to me fully, even beginning, captured the Iran that I saw with my eyes, the Iran that I heard when people were expressing their grievances, um, and it just didn't explain it. It was a much more of a descriptive way to make intellectuals it's an intellectual discourse which should be studied in its own right because it has a history that predates the revolution. But it's not explanatory. It doesn't help me understand Iran. Okay, Ivan. You know, we talk a lot about um, the expansion of uh, the social welfare state. Can we talk a little bit about the erosion? Can we talk about what what is endangering some of these social welfare programs? Yeah, sure. Uh, there's two things going on. I mean, one are these more obvious uh, kind of outside shocks. So, I mean, you know, when a country is not allowed to grow, um, not allowed to participate in world trade. The state can't get revenue to fund, you know, the existing social welfare systems, health insurance, uh, education, um, pensions, no matter how mismanaged or whatever you want to call it. I mean, this this debate about social policy is, is very, oh, it's mismanagement versus sanctions. I mean, it doesn't really help. So aside from those shocks of, of decreased revenue to the state, uh, there's two, I think, structural problems in Iran which are making social policy and social policy access more and more difficult and present, I would say, crises in the future, and crises now, but also really in the future. Uh, the first is 
uh, actually a set of crises that are born out of success, not born out of failure. So like it or not, Iran, after the revolution, um, through a variety of mechanisms, intended and otherwise, uh, experienced a reduction in absolute poverty. So whatever your poverty line you want to draw, people always cite poverty figures in Iran willy-nilly without drawing the line. What line are they talking about? Poverty in Iran went down, especially after the war and after the early Hashemi period, so in the 90s and the 2000s. Poverty went from a medium poverty society to a low poverty society in absolute levels, meaning absolute poverty. Whatever line you draw, $2 a day, $5 a day, it went down. Uh, instead, So instead of the politics of poverty, getting basic needs to people, whether it's medicine, primary health care, literacy, those are the problems of absolute poverty. Iran switched or you know, sort of transformed to a country with the problems of inequality. So the politics of inequality are not about the basic needs anymore, but about the relative access to goods, to uh, not the quantity of education available, but the quality. So lots of people have access to education in Iran now. I can go to a, uh, a free university, Azad, in my little local province, pay $1,000 for, I think, a year? I mean, a semester is still pretty cheap. I and mean, Iranians think it's highway robbery. I have to pay $1,000 tuition, but, you know, and get a credential. But what's that credential get me now? So, so the politics of inequality of social policy are different than I don't have anything to eat. And that's a, that's a prop, set of problems born out of success. So the old problems are gone, which actually creates the new problems. Because in healthcare, now I, if I have the money, I have access to good health care. If I don't have the money, I have access to state health care, right? So that even the, the state system itself is eroded through inequality uh, access and the, the way in which people use resources to, um, to consume social policy goods. So, you know, there's only two ways out of that. One is to create a more universal system of social policy where high quality and access are provided. That's expensive. In fact, that's far more expensive than the old system of just basically social protection floors, food subsidies, basic health care. That's a lot cheaper. Uh, you can do that as a third world country. But to make a really you know, extensive, high quality, almost universal system of health insurance and education, it's very expensive. And we certainly haven't done it in the United States. So that not only brings back the resource question, but the question of uh, democracy. I mean, the question of democracy, not in the um, elections sense, but in the sense of are there mechanisms in which the state like, is hearing and, 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 and listening, and not listening, but responding to the problems of access and inequality that, um, that Iranians are experiencing today. And that's what they really mostly are complaining about when they're complaining. It's not that they don't have access to any social policy, I just don't have access to social policy that my neighbor does, right? Or this neighborhood does that I don't belong to. Or this city does that I don't belong to. So that's what a lot of the politics are. And I actually go a bit about that in the end of the book. So that's the one, you know, so that the problems of today are born out of the successes of the past. And the other is that, you know, like many social policy systems in the third world, they're fragmented. Uh, they come out of lots of different uh, p policies, um, and the institutions do not talk to each other. So there are all these bureaucrats and technocrats in Iran who have known this to be a problem for decades, and they write journals, uh, articles in their journals that I've read, and say, oh, if you had a rational social policy system, this is what it would look like. And of course, just like Obama said with Obamacare, he's like, I would prefer a single pair, but this is the way we're going to go, given the politics and the institutional legacies of the United States healthcare system. Well, in Iran, we have similar problems. Is that this this parallelism, this fragmentation, which 
actually at the time t- reached more people than a top-down uh like slowly expanding system would have in the 80s and 90s now is really hitting its limits and there's been all these attempts to 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 merge them to universalize it and and some of them have done a pretty good job actually over the last few years but and at the same time one of the great problems of universalizing social policy is universalize things downward so that the policy becomes crappy. No one wants it. And so then people will go into the private sector to consume their health care, their education, etc. So Iran is also having this problem of how do you centralize in an efficient way these systems? Uh, and they're frankly um, you know, not doing a good job. Why? Because the political system in Iran is it's not just divided it's not necessarily divided but there's no coherent policy making apparatus and i have reasons why in the book it's not because they're religious uh it's not because uh, they're a bunch of bums uh, it's because of the structure of politics iran tends to prevent um coherent policy making kayvon thank you so much for joining us for our listeners if uh once again if you're interested in uh kayvon's book it is a social revolution politics and the welfare state in iran uh, and it is by University of California Press. So hope to see you uh, uh, next Mesa, Kevon. Good luck with the podcast and Ajam 2.0, 3.0. It's always it's now. always renewing every every day. It's, it's <laughs> eternal renewal, internal. So good luck to you all. All right, thanks. And uh, for our listeners, um, as always, if you want to engage with us, um, contact us on Facebook or on Twitter, and uh, we'll continue the conversation there. Until next time, see you around. Rafa, I'm going to go